Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Michael Chong and the information that he was targeted by China. So was his family. He was not told. Who knew what, where, and when? The Prime Minister contradicting the information that Michael Chong came out with when the Prime Minister said, no, it wasn't shared. Almost blaming ceases was the story we were covering at the beginning of the week. And then we're learning new information. So we have questions, a wake-up call, and clearly an indication this story is not going away. We also have retired Vice Admiral Royal Canadian Navy, Mark Norman, joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Well, good afternoon, Arlene, and uh, all the best to you and your listeners. And if I could, I'd just like to give a shout-out to our friend Roy and I wish him a speedy recovery. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Yeah, great. And I'm sure we have a lot of people echoing and big chorus there. Mark, let me ask you, with all your experience, what were you thinking? I kind of went through what I was thinking and certainly covering it this week. But when you saw the conflicting information, just even from your military mind, what was it saying to you on this week's event? Yeah, so I had a number of uh, reactions, like many, um, in, in no particular order. You know, first of all, I think my immediate reaction was, oh, come on, really? Are we going through this kind of who said what to who, when, mm-hmm. again sort of scenario, which is is really confusing for people? And it just, I think it just undermines confidence in the government uh, and and the security and defense apparatus that's there. That's my first reaction. My second reaction is that, um, you know, I have no doubt that the information was available and that it was being moved through the machinery of government. I have no insight into this specific issue, but these kinds of things are, they're well captured, they're well briefed. And and I think we're seeing an example of, um, to be honest, uh, some, some systemic incompetence more likely on the political and political staffer side of things than on the machinery of government side of things. Um, obviously, a reaction about, uh, you know, Mr. Chong, it's himself and his family. I mean, that's just a terrible situation. But I, I and then I, the, my, my most, I think, concerning reaction is that we just once again demonstrate to the world, and in particular, in this case, to China, that we just are not a serious country and we're not behaving seriously. And these are real issues. And I genuinely believe that there are real threats to our our democracy and to the institutions that support it. So those are my thoughts. All right. All right. I want to ask you, I want to go into the details of the contradiction. And I know you were going, oh, no. And I I think a lot of Canadians were. But let's pick up on the really important context that we can keep in mind as we move through this here. The importance of it. We have looked at some dents in our national security. Some say this is a warning sign, an alarm bell or more. I mean, People are also wondering if this isn't a dangerous and important moment, Mark. And as you say, our allies are watching and what they think of us matters here. Mark, is it is it an inflection point in your opinion? 
Um, it could be. Um, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll say bluntly, I, I haven't thought of it that way uh, until you mentioned it, but it is significant for the very reasons you described. And, and it's significant really on, on two levels. How are we going to, how are we going to act on this ourselves? Because it's in our interest to do so, and we need to do the right thing. And as you point out, then how are we going to, to act um, in the context of our uh, more global responsibilities. And, and, you know, of course, the Chinese are going to be annoyed at us um, if we push back and expel the uh, diplomat. But, I mean, this, this is, we're, we're, we're being weak and we're being indecisive. And the, the Chinese regime are bullies and they're going to take advantage of that. Whether we like to think that that's the way things happen or not, the reality is that's how they're going to play out. What do you think we should do at this moment? We've got a call to expel uh, the diplomat in question. And so far, we don't have any action on that. What would that say? Well, I, I think the vacillation and indecision is just playing right into the hands of the Chinese regime. And it's demonstrating once again that Canada does not have a clear policy, a clear a strategy as it relates to how we want to manage our relationship with China. I, I believe that we continue to act in an extremely naive way. Um, and, um, you know, as far as the specific actions at the moment are concerned, I, I tend to agree with uh, the arguments that are being made that, um, you know, we should have acted, uh, we should have acted decisively and we should have accepted the risks of doing so. Um, but the longer this plays out, I think the weaker Canada looks um, on the world stage, and in particular, as it relates to our relationship with China. It is. I mean, we've been pursuing this economic relationship with China for a long time. It's been really tough. And we've asked ourselves a question. The world has done that, even with the Olympics. Can you do both? The word engagement came up over and over again. And now we're looking at how much engagement there was and with maybe not the payoffs we thought that that engagement would bring China a little bit into the norm that we expected. Mark, has that engagement been a failure? do you think? I, I won't predict whether it's going to fail or not, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you two comments. The first one is that serious nations act based on national interests. And until you can really come to grips with what your interests are in terms of specific relationships or opportunities, as you just described them, or, or threats and, and vulnerabilities, as we're seeing play out, you, you can balance them if you're acting consistently in support of your own interests. You know, the serious countries um, are able to pursue um, a multitude of interests uh, simultaneously and concurrently in their relationships with, with difficult countries like China. And the example I was going to give you and your listeners is uh, Australia who um, have a significantly larger right. portion of their trade uh, than we do uh, with China. And yet they're able to progress both um, a, a uh, productive trade relationship with the country, while at the same time um, demonstrating the kinds of um, strength and, and fortitude that sadly have been lacking in our policy towards China over the last several years. 
So you can do both. It just takes a, a little bit of a deft hand, and we haven't seen that. Uh, Mark, you know, one of the points, and I'm, I'm sure they're polling like crazy in the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party to see where this hits Canadians. And often when we talk about such things, they get kind of complicated. We're talking national security and Canadians, uh, they're buying groceries and working hard. and They don't always have time to absorb it all. But this, you can kind of get this week, especially because we can put ourselves in in the shoes here. And we know Chinese Canadians have been trying to say it for some time that Michael Chong and they have been saying it, they were targeted by China and no one told them, no one told Michael Chong. What is your sense from of how this is hitting can- Canadians, average Canadians, if I can use that cliche. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I think your sense is is good, and 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 I'll tell you why I'm leaning that way. Um, I gen- I genuinely and firmly believe that Canadians should not have to worry about national security. It, 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 this is one of the, the the primary functions of government is to is to ensure the security of Canadians, to ensure the security. Uh, and stability of all the institutions that serve Canadians and that Canadians have enough challenges in their lives. They shouldn't have to worry about it. It's also why I I don't think that, um, you know, defense and security issues should be um, popularized in terms of public opinion, but that's a whole other issue. But back to your question, I think this does resonate or it is going to resonate for the very reason you said. This is a Canadian who has chosen to serve his country as a member of parliament and he and his family have been threatened. And it appears that the right things did not happen for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and the whole who said what to whom argument is both sensational, but at the same time concerning. Um, and, and I think, I think they are paying attention more than they have been and I think their views on Chinese interference in general have been um, somewhat awakened over the last several months for a variety of reasons. All right. We've learned a lot since 9-11. This was, and then there was a commission and they seem to have it. We need an inquiry. Maybe America could do it. Certainly in those days, I don't know if they'd have the same political challenges as we do now as uh, politics has changed and almost the stubbornness has changed, in my opinion. Mark Norman, let me ask you, let's go back to where we're learning this. I mentioned as we began the show that former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien making a little bit of a joke about this at the Liberal Convention this weekend in Ottawa that, you know, saying, you know, he he kind of thought, oh, the globe is going to call for an inquiry on election interference because Hillary Clinton's in town. First of all, is it a joking matter? And we know, I mean, politicians give it a willy on these things. They always do. But sometimes they don't work. And then other, and the other thing I'm going to ask you here, too, is where we are on this story. We've, we've come so far, it began with the leaks. We thought it was someone from ceases leaking just individually because they felt about it. But now we know, I mean, there seems to be, there seems to be a, a lot more pouring out of here. It's not drip, drip, drip. There's a flood here. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in there. Um, I, I guess I'll react uh, to the, to the two key points. The first one is that um, I, I uh, I have very uh, negative reactions to any politician 
that trivializes or diminishes issues of national security. I think that is a reflection of an overall lack of maturity in this country as it relates to issues of security and defense, and that I think it is irresponsible uh, of anyone, uh, of any political stripe, uh, particularly a former prime minister, to make dismissive remarks about the significance of what's what appears to be going on at the moment. And to your second question or comment, um, you know, I'm I'm deciphering this as much as you are. Um, Mm -hmm. And my sense is that, you know, that that, that there is there is something here. Um, I don't know what the right mechanism is, um, but it would sure help if people would just come out and be honest and be forthright and be transparent. And maybe that would um, put a lot of these issues to bed. But I think it goes back fundamentally to the earlier conversation about how about we deal with the real issue, which isn't who said what to whom. But the real issue is, when are we going to grow up? And when are we going to start behaving um, as a serious nation as it relates to our national sec- issues of national security? And in particular, this issue with respect to um, the interference of the Chinese regime in our democratic institutions and who knows what else. You know, there's lots of talk about, uh, you know, the the lacking, we could, the procurement problem here we've gone through. And it's all connected to the story. It's kind of opened up a window into our military. None of it, none of it is really new, is it, Mark? I mean, we've heard bits of this for years and years and years, but it's come together with that big question mark that you and I keep going back to this afternoon is, what are our allies thinking? How important is this, especially at this time of war in Ukraine? Yeah, that and it is it is a, a foundational issue, um, and the, the the country is struggling, uh, failing in many respects, um, and and there's way too many uh, factors for us to discuss this afternoon. But I, I I go back to what I've said before, and you know I we just don't take these issues seriously. We talk about them, we 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 say the right things, but we don't act consistent with our rhetoric. And um, you know th- th- we can look, we can do anything we want in this country. This is an incredible country. We are, we are we're privileged. We're wealthy. Um, we put our minds to something. We can do it. The, the the challenge here in the context of defense and security is we're not really committed to it. We're 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 doing what we think is enough to just get by and to satisfy um, the uh, the perceived needs and wants of our neighbors to the south and our allies. But we're not really um, committed to it um, unless there's a crisis like we're seeing in Ukraine, and then it's often the case of too little, too late. So that's a bit of a long rambling response, but, uh, you know, that's the best I can give you. On All right. Afternoon. Yeah, it's uh, it's great for a Saturday afternoon. Mark, let me ask you with your experience, how does the rank and file feel? All the challenges we talk about procurement, which really means not enough people say they want to join the military. That's all that means, really, isn't it? Is that you want to to jazz up the interest in it and make it make it a job that they're proud of. Is this affecting things within the rank and file in the military, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's a classic catch-22 scenario in, in that um, we are at a, at a crisis point in terms of 
the uh, staffing levels of the military. Uh, we're not hitting recruiting targets, haven't hit recruiting targets for well over a decade. Um, and, you know, attrition is, is on the rise because people are feeling um, disenfranchised and disassociated um, with the institution for a variety of reasons. Some of them are are more human related and others are, are directly to your point. They're just seeing that that uh, the, the, the country that these these amazing men and women have chosen to serve just isn't recognizing the importance of their service um, to them individually, collectively, and making the kinds of investments um, in terms of capability that are required. So yes, until it, it is it is by definition a wicked problem, and and the the problems are compounding each other as we try to uh, move this forward. And so okay. it's not going to be a quick fix. It, it's not just a case of money, but certainly that has been a problem for decades. And, um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, it, we're well past the time where we need to really uh, take this more seriously. There's various things that have a pull on this election. It's very close. We've got two formal rivals. It's post-pandemic. We're, are we seeing a new kind of politics? We're also seeing something that the the federal conservatives are being challenged with. How do you keep, can you keep the base and then drag new people over and have them check it off? So a lot of things are being tested here. Lisa, Lisa Young joining us live, political scientist at the University of Calgary. Good afternoon, Lisa. Hello. It is intriguing, isn't it, for all those things? It's, you know, elections matter. We know that. But this one's quite exciting here. How is the factor that it's so close playing into this? Well, I think, you know, this makes it interesting to watch for people elsewhere in the country and certainly for those of us who are living through it. These two parties have been neck and neck for the last two or three months in the polls. And I think lots of us expected something to shift, one of the parties to to get momentum. It was hard to know which one, but the polls aren't budging. And so it's this really unusual thing where we have, for the popular vote, two parties basically in a statistical tie in almost all of the polls that we see. And, uh, you know, and, and only three weeks left to go in the election campaign. It is. It could be a nail biter. And as I said, a test. And and you bring up very correctly, the polls are not budging. However, the people seem to be budging and really including uh, Daniel Smith coming and pushing away some of the things that she actually ran on to get this gig, the Sovereignty Act, and kind of heaving them off the side of the ship as she comes into harbor here for the election. Lisa, we, we always wondered that during the, the leadership campaign. Political watchers, can you run on that? Will that work? What do you make of this tossing things over the edge right now? Yeah, it, it's really interesting to see. So for people who haven't been following Alberta politics closely for the last Uh, year, Danielle Smith ran for the UCP leadership on a platform that was basically about 
um, redressing what she saw as the wrongs of COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. She wanted to pardon uh, people who had been uh, uh, charged with offenses uh, for protesting against the the COVID restrictions. She wanted to um, make sure that there would never be a vaccination mandate in Alberta again. And she ran on her Sovereignty Act. And so... We've seen very little. She's had to distance herself from a lot of uh, her positions around COVID. And um, she she did pass a Sovereignty Act, but it was a much less radical piece of legislation than what she had been talking about during the campaign. And now um, during the, the election campaign, she doesn't really want to talk about either of those things. Instead, she's trying to change the subject and talk about lowering taxes, and uh, all of the spending that uh, her government has done over the last few months in the lead-up to the election. All right. You know, stuff. Again, one of the reasons this is fascinating, you bet, uh, the the conservatives uh, are watching this in Ottawa. Pierre Polyev, what do you do? How much do you have to feed the base? And how do you get those people that are going to push you over? As you you said so correctly, as we began, it's very close. The only way to break it is to get new people to join you. However, you know, we ask a question here, don't we, Lisa? Well, what are we voting for? You just said push it off. Then people may be left with a question. What am I buying when I when I take off that name? Yeah, I think there are certainly some questions here. And um, yesterday, Danielle Smith said that she, you know, she wasn't going to take a stand on some controversial issues. One of them is whether there should be a new Alberta pension plan that would take Alberta out of the Canada pension plan. And this is an idea that is very popular with her base, but isn't popular with the electorate and is considered to be quite frightening by many people. And so she doesn't want to talk about any of this until after the election. So the question here is, can you get away with this? Can you change the channel? Mm -hmm. Can you say, oh, no, the election is no time to talk about, you know, major political issues like that. We'll, We'll deal with it later. And, you know, it, it, she may well uh, be able to get away with this, um, in part, I think, because among the, some of those centrist voters, there's perhaps a reluctance to vote for the NDP. And that is really the only viable alternative vote for those uh, voters. It is. She also wants uh, to replace the RCMP and doesn't want to talk about it. And you're right. I mean, there there may be a reluctance there, but we're also seeing the pond that they're fishing out of and they're going for the same, the undecided, those who would swing back and forth. So accommodations have to be made here, Lisa. And then we'll we'll also see, as I said, it could be a test. What does the base want? Do they want full flat, full fat Daniel Smith or will they take it light? Yeah. And I think, you know, at the moment, what she's doing is keeping the base satisfied by saying to them, essentially, look, you you know, you may not like some of the stances that I'm taking, but this is what I'm doing in order to win the election. Right. And Mm -hmm. you don't want Rachel Notley to win. So you've got to sort of stick with me, give me some rope and, and let me move to the center and take these stances. I think the question is what happens 
after the election? Does mm-hmm. she govern as the the Danielle Smith who has made all of these sort of centrist uh, promises, or does she go back to the the stances that she would have taken in the past and keep the base happy? And one way or another, um, there's going to be a segment of her voters that aren't necessarily going to be happy. It'll be really challenging to to strike a balance in government between the centrist voters and the base that are calling for some pretty dramatic policy changes. We also had the three hundred million to the arena deal, and they're not they don't appear at this point to be getting a bounce out of that. Was that a risk, Lisa? Absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, that there might have been a sense that, you know, if you want to win Calgary, what you need to do is make sure that there's an arena deal. But I don't think that that reflects a, a really nuanced understanding of public opinion in Calgary. And one of the interesting things that we've seen is that there's been criticism, certainly from people who are on the center left, who are probably voting NDP anyways. But we've seen some fairly prominent conservative voices uh, talking about the arena deal not being a good deal for Calgary. And um, I think that has maybe blunted any positive impact that the arena deal might have had um, because, uh, you know, Calgary taxpayers will benefit from the provincial contribution, but there's a pretty significant price tag uh, for the city of Calgary for this. And I think that that has uh, raised some questions about the the deal and and, and maybe taken away any bounce that she might have uh, received from that. All right, Lisa, we have lots of advice and analysis for Daniel Smith. Now let's do Rachel Notley, neck and neck again. One of the exciting things is these people are foes. They've been at it before. If this was a sporting event, we could really lay it on thick of when they'd faced off before and who won and who lost. As certainly we know that Rachel Notley did not take the crown away from Daniel Smith, but she had it for the NDP. And we've got this uh, dynamic foe against foe here, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an unusual situation where Rachel Notley has been Premier of Alberta um, for four years. Um, When her party lost in 2019, she didn't step down. Instead, she said she wanted, you know, another try at this. She wanted a comeback. And um, she has really focused her party over the last four years on building a a party machine in a way that they didn't have um, in Alberta in in the past. And because this election is going to be decided largely in Calgary, there's been a real emphasis on recruiting uh, candidates who've got some prominence in Calgary, in putting organization on the ground and really trying to establish the party as a party of Calgary in a way that it just wasn't um, in prior elections. All right. You know, we've talked about spending a lot and the NDP, of course, like to spend a lot more than Daniel Smith's government does. Well, at least uh, on on paper, (laughs) they all they all start (laughs) flinging it out, don't they, when they want the vote. That that, makes the interesting six months ago. I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) Even though there was those pandemic checks that went out across, we all saw them all across the country. Okay, Lisa, let me ask you, you know, we've got Rachel Notley, we've got inflation 
information kind of easing, but it's on people's minds, I'm sure, as they were crafting messages, especially the NDP here, too, really trying to be sensitive to what people are feeling at the cash register. We know Pierre Polyev's really had a lot of success trying to feel the pain here, but inflation is easing here. So the economics of this is is a little bit different. Yeah, and you know the affordability question has been tricky for the NDP. Um, Smith came in with affordability payments, so you know six hundred dollars to families for you know every child under eighteen to seniors, and so money has has been flowing. Um, there's uh, the the fuel tax has been canceled for a number of months. So they can certainly point to things that they've done. So it puts the NDP a little bit on their their back foot on the question of affordability. So one of the things that Notley has done is to try to emphasize some of the decisions that the UCP has made over the past four years that have contributed to affordability issues for Albertans. Um, there, There was significant deregulation of auto insurance, for example. And so Notley is talking about that and saying, look, uh, under her government, um, there would be regulation and the cost of auto insurance would be frozen or, or scaled back. And there are a number of other issues like that. But certainly, it, it's difficult as the opposition to compete with the government that controls the purse strings in the months leading up to the election. It's always, and also, they can spend more, can't they, this election? The parties can spend more in trying to get people to tick them off on the ballot. Yeah, I, I mean, there has been a lot of government spending, and uh, Alberta has posted uh, some very significant surpluses over the last couple of years because the price of oil has been so high. But one of the things that happened last week that's kind of interesting is that the price of oil went down to the point that um, it, it was below what the budget, the last provincial budget, had assumed. So now spending promises are looking a little less secure than they would have even a week ago because Alberta remains so reliant on uh, natural resource uh, revenues uh, in, in its public spending. Yeah, I meant the actual parties can spend oh, more sorry. on campaigning and everything. I know you sounded a little confused. I don't blame you. Let's go back, though, uh, to the differences here. Another reason why this is so fascinating across the country is here Here we have these two parties kind of acting like each other, one on the right, one on the left. But Rachel Notley doing that delicate dance. I mean, she knows how she did it before. She went on the belly of the beast in many ways, conservative Canada winning Alberta. And and being able to kind of dive in and represent things that the the federal NDP party just doesn't. Danielle Smelt doing the same, only appeasing and and drawing in her base. But then they're both fishing for these middle people. So it's a it's going to be a heck of a tussle. Not a it's a slim margin who they're going after, but it's going to make or break it. Yeah, there's a pollster, uh, David Coletto from Abacus Data, who talks mm-hmm. about reluctant UCP voters. 
people who voted uh, UCP in 2019, and they just don't know if they can bring themselves to do it this time around. And these people tend to live in the suburbs. They are more likely to be women than men. They're concerned about affordability. Um, And it's a relatively small group, but both parties are going hard after this vote because that's really all that's left now. Um, Most voters are pretty entrenched in their views. They're either strongly supporting the NDP or they're strongly supporting the UCP, or they dislike the other party so much that they can't believe that anyone would vote for that other party. So there's very few votes really up for grabs here, but both parties are going hard after that group. They're also having to focus a lot on the question of turnout. Um, And there's some question about whether um, people who are not happy with the UCP but can't bring themselves to vote NDP might just choose to stay home. So there's going to be lots of emphasis on voter turnout as we get closer to uh, Election Day. Good news, right? It was over and there was a deal and then the CRA people stayed on. And we understand with the CRA people that they were really kind of hunkering down over the work from home aspect of this. And it really does set a precedent. There was a lot of things that were being tested with that strike. Let's see what it looks like has happened with the post-pandemic reality of where we work and how we do it. Joining us is Alexandra Samuel, a digital researcher and a writer. Good afternoon, Alexandra. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. It was. It was a test. It was a kind of a, it was something that drew everybody into this strike. It wasn't just about how they were being affected by things they couldn't get. They saw themselves and this work from home has been one of the most surprising things after the pandemic. It's just really incredible how many how many businesses are a little bit empty these days? Alexandra, first of all, what do you make of what was decided here to study it, I think? I know that's kind of being a broad a broad resolution that happened on the strike, but it's still alive. Well, I think we ended up in a, in a pretty smart middle ground. At least I'm very hopeful that it will turn out to be a smart middle ground, which is, on the one hand, um, we want to see some consistency in how these policies are applied, because what I hear in organization after organization, and not just in the public sector, but also, you know, in the, in the private sector, is that there's a lot of um, unpredictability in how managers approach hybrid work. Some organizations issue a top-down edict. A lot of organizations have, you know, individual managers deciding how often people need to be in, whether they get to decide their own schedules. Sometimes there's a perception of favoritism. And then, of course, in lots of organizations, there's a huge number of people who can't work on site at all. So then that also creates resentment. So I think part of what this decision uh, or, or agreement hopefully does is move away from a sense that Um, Either everybody has to live within the bounds of this kind of one-size-fits-all edict that the feds brought in in December without a lot of appreciation for nuances in individual departments, but on the other hand, um, not wanting to get into a situation where, you know, it's just up to your manager. And so that that middle ground of um, we're going to have some basic policies in place and we're going to have some transparency around decisions are made, um, I think balances those two sets of considerations. 
It is. It's really incredible that after the pandemic, when we were all kind of freaked out, oh, my God, we got to work at home. We had to broadcast from home. Everybody's mm-hmm. setting things up. Everybody were doing it. And it was all we felt like we were in a movie. And now here we are. And some people want to keep part of that movie. There is a sense. I mean, some of the people I'm talking to that they don't think this is entirely going away. And there was a time I sure thought that we'd all be, you know, scrambling back to the office and so happy to leave that behind. Mm -mm. No, I mean, survey after survey has shown that actually the vast majority of people who have worked from home in the past um, three years want to stay um, working from home typically about three days a week. I think most people recognize that there's really some very helpful aspects of coming to the office. It's helpful to have our meetings in person. It's helpful to kind of see what's going on. It's nice to, you know, put on your pants once a week and find out if the (laughs) waistband still does (laughs) up. Um, (laughs) All of those are excellent reasons to go to the office, as I learned the hard way. True. Yeah, we all did. We Uh, all did. Yeah. you know, but I I think um, the, the truth of the matter is that the modern workplace is pretty ill-adapted to the kind of work m- m- many people do now, right? If, if you're in a role that could be done remotely, you are by definition in a knowledge job. You're not in a job that involves using factory equipment. You're not in a job that involves doing customer service face-to-face. And that means that a lot of your work probably involves doing, you know, deep-focused tasks that are awfully hard to do when you're getting interrupted every 10 minutes by somebody sticking their head into your cubicle. And so part of the productivity benefits that we saw and part of the um, reason people are so keen to hold on to their remote status is there are certain kinds of work. Uh, a lot of the type of work that you do as a knowledge worker, it's just really, really hard to do in a, in a busy office. And when you work from home, you have the flexibility to dive deeper into those tasks. And of course, you also have some more flexibility to accommodate, you know, the dentist appointment, the kid who gets head home from school sick, and, you know, the other things that are just part of life, but not really accounted for in the structure of modern work. It is. And, you know, I remember somebody telling me once when they were examining the stress at work, accommodating those things that you just talked about can sometimes make people stay in a job or leave in a job. Now, it used to be that management accommodated people when stuff came up. You know, their cat's sick and they love their cat. I mean, that's that matters to people. And but now you can kind of handle them on your own if you're a knowledge worker. And that's the key word. Yeah. Well, and this is this is where this stuff gets really tricky is there are incredible inequities in who's getting room to have a life and who isn't. And, you know, we know there's both a, a personal benefit to being able to have some flexibility in your work hours. And there's also a financial benefit, right? If you're not commuting oh, to work, yeah. you save some money. And, you know, especially if you're lucky enough to have an employer who provides, you know, a good ergonomic desk and a good chair and a good monitor for you at home you can really come out a little bit ahead financially if you're working at home. And so when you have organizations where 40 or 50% of the workforce is in the office by virtue of the nature of their job, they're operating equipment, they're dealing with customers, they have some other reason they have to be on site. And then you have a group of workers who are um, have been working off site because of, of the pandemic, are now reluctant to return to the office even two or three days a week. That doesn't necessarily go over super well with the people who you know, were in the office all the way through COVID and maybe got COVID because they didn't have a chance to retreat to home. 
Yeah, it is. Well, pandemic exposed it. There are people, you know, just who were part of the economic engine driving the the delivery of things all across the country, and they didn't have the same kind of choices here. And here we are. Isn't it ironic that we're back at it? Choices. Not everyone has them. <laughs> well, and that's why, um, you know, this this next few years worth of collective agreements is, I think, going to be so crucial. And, you know, frankly, even in workplaces that aren't unionized, I think it really behooves all of us, um, managers, executives, but also like frontline employees to really think about, you know, what kind of workplace do we want to have? Because when we switched to working remotely during COVID, there was no time to think about, you know, how do we want remote work to, to, to operate? It just happened. And it happened in really difficult, a really difficult moment. But now we have a little bit of room around this transition to hybrid work. And we can think about these questions like, gosh, you know, 2019, yeah, we were all at the office, but we were pretty stressed out because we didn't have flexibility for our personal lives, because we didn't have time to answer our email during the workday, and we were all spending our evenings handling email then. So how can we make this new workplace more effective for us as an organization, more sustainable for our employees, more resilient in the face of technological changes that we can see happening already. I mean, we know that AI is going to change the structure of employment in the next few years. Mm -hmm. This is our opportunity to create organizations, workplaces, and, and workplace agreements that reflect the kind of workplaces we want to have, the kind of workplaces we know are going to do the best job at making us competitive as a country. Um, and, and we only have a window of maybe a year or so to get it right. Alexandra, you know, I we all knew that we connected with people at work. God knows I'm still friends with people I work with in some of my first jobs in this industry, mm-hmm. tight, fast, friends. And But now we're reexamining it and we're seeing when it gets taken away that it kind of hits us in the face when we come back. Maybe not enough that we want to be there for five days a week, but there is a psychological aspect to this. You know, I look and I think of people who are in their early 20s and they're starting, even in this career, and I think, wow, are you going to do what I did? Are you going to meet reporters after work in a strip club? Are you going to, are you going to, you know, all the crazy things that we did together and it made who you who you are. Is there, a, is there a younger generation maybe missing out on some of the things that make us good at what we do, actually? Well, you know, I, I appreciate that you um, use that example because I, I actually often talk about what it was like for me in my 20s when I was first working with yeah. Leslie, and I remember going to the, to the office worrying about whether I was keeping up with my colleagues in Toronto and then going to Toronto and my colleagues are all going out to Hooters at lunch. And I thought, God, there you like, go. Um, yeah. being in the office is like <laughs> super uncomfortable and not very inclusive way to yeah. work. And I think one of the things that those of us who, you know, kind of look at over our shoulder and think, like, how do these kids think they're going to get up to speed is to remember that the offices we grew up in were often really full of huge structural obstacles that made a lot of us really uncomfortable. And so Absolutely. there's no point in romanticizing the office. And there's also no point in pretending that we're giving these younger people an opportunity to get acculturated anyhow, because most of them are stringing together two or three jobs because they aren't being paid enough in their primary job to be able to fully commit. So, you know, if you want your younger employees to commit to your office, to your culture, 
make it a culture worth committing to and give them a paycheck that makes it feasible to show up fully. Um, you know, so I, I think that's part of it. The other part is, you know, frankly, in terms of the the loneliness and the and the conversely, the relationships that can happen in the office, I think there is a we know that there are huge gains when people in in an organization really trust each other in a, in a meaningful way. It, mm-hmm. it expedites mm-hmm. the work. It lets them connect. Um, but there's a big difference between trusting your colleagues and needing your colleagues to be your best friends. And I think part of the reason so many of us had social lives that centered on our colleagues is because we were at the office 60 hours a week. Like if you're at the office you 60, 60 hours mm-hmm. a week, good luck having other friends. Good luck having another life. Once you shift to working part-time from home, your office mates and colleagues can be people you trust and value and respect, but they don't need to be the people you have lunch with. They don't need to be the people you go out for a drink with. They don't even need to be the people you use as your sounding board in the course of a workday. Because if you have colleagues who like live in your neighborhood, who you co-work with, who can you know double check your stuff for you or you know talk over a problem before you send an email, that may actually be a, a more effective way for you to sustain a sense of social connection than, you know, putting on your big kid clothes and going on an hour long commute every day. Yeah, that's it's so very true. As we ex- examine it, we see what was important and what wasn't. And I think you raised a really good point. There were things about that constant office that could also be toxic as well. Are we going to figure it out, Alexandra? It's kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, it happened because it had to. We all kind of you know, jumped into a movie, some kind of a sci-fi movie, and now it's real and we're figuring it out. It just seemed like crazy stuff years ago. Well, you know, it's funny. I, um, in 1996, I wanted, to, I was doing a PhD and I was trying to convince my dissertation committee that I should be able to write a PhD about how the internet was going to change the way we all work together. And they thought I was crazy. And they were right because it actually didn't happen until COVID. But, you know, what's exciting um, now is that COVID did kind of flip a switch and give us this opportunity to rethink our working lives. And it's scary. Um, change is hard, but I think we really need to resist the urge to go back to the way it was out of fear and out of insecurity. And we need to instead open ourselves to this invitation, this really extraordinary invitation to reimagine work because, you know, the world, the the rate of technology change, the, the phenomenon of climate change, Um, the pace of economic change, they all call on us to come up with a different way of working, and we have a chance to do that right now. It was one of those moments where you knew you were Canadian, and then it had it all. We saw other people. We saw Bob Dylan recognize it. The thing we love as Canadians, don't we? We just love it when they love us, especially in America, and we go, yes, and we knew it all along. But when we had to say goodbye to Gordon Lightfoot, we saw it all again. Eric Alper joining me as we go through this journey, and we will take your thoughts here. He is, of course, a music commentator extraordinaire. Eric, happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Oh, happy to do it. And yeah, um, good timing on the call because they're basically about halfway through the a really Ontario hometown oh, concert. Yeah. Um, there was a a book of condolences and a book of remembrance that's going on um, in both Aurelia and Toronto. And like you said, with the show happening tonight, starting at eight o'clock. 
Yeah, and it's kind of going to be a microcosm of how we all feel. I just want to say there, you know, sundown as we came in, and that was about Kathy Evelyn Smith, who went to jail for giving drugs to John Belushi, and Gordon Lightfoot stood by her. There's all sorts of stories connected to this man, isn't there? Yeah, um, like when you stay in music for five, six decades, you're going <laughs> to run into people and you're going to have those stories to, to say. Um, but yeah, you know, Sundown um, tells the story of that really troubled romantic relationship that he's really never actually came out to say, yes, it's been Kathy Smith, but the timing of it looks pretty clear that it was that it was her, um, with the narrator recounting an affair with a hard-loving woman got me feeling mean, and, uh, you know, but that didn't stop it from hitting number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and easy listening charts and, uh, and, the, and the country charts, too. So, yeah, when you... Oh, the stories that all of those people from that time mm-hmm. could tell, you know, from that time at the at Toronto's Riverboat Club where Gordon, um, you know, used to hang out with David Clayton Thomas and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and uh, and Bruce Coburn and Murray McLaughlin. They're all they've all got amazing, amazing stories about one another. And I'm sure that a lot will be told this weekend. Absolutely. Eric, you know, it, it was a moment. I mean, you, you do this. You are this. And it struck me, I was moved by it. I'm terribly moved by it. There were times I could barely speak when I listened to some of the songs, especially, you know, um, did she mention my name or those? I remember I told a story, and I'm sure you have one, and we're going to take other stories and listen to them here. I remember I was in a store, actually, and it was in Prince Edward Island, and it was just some crappy store. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> it came on, and I realized how beautiful the song was, and I was so moved in the store and went home and started playing him again. I'm sure that's happening now. People have been reminded he was a poet, not just a musician. Yeah, and it's reflected all over social media and music streaming services. In fact, um, before his passing, he was just over about 1 million monthly listeners on Spotify. Now he's over 3 million. So in the last week alone, um, over 2 million people have been listening to Gore and Life. But now that doesn't tell you how many times they've listened to a song or how many songs that that one person has listened to. Um, but Sundown is just under 100 million streams on Spotify. And if you can read my mind, it's about 5 million streams away. So both those numbers, they're going to explode past the 100 million mark sometime this week. Um, But that's the beautiful thing about being a music fan in 2023, is that when somebody died in in when we were teenagers or young adults, we had to hope that the record store, first of all, you had to hope that you had a record store that was nearby. And then you had to hope that they weren't sold out of everything because it could be days, if not weeks of getting a new John Lennon album back in or a greatest hits album back in. Um, But now it's so immediate that when we found out just before 10 o'clock that, um, that Gordon Lightfoot had passed away, he immediately went to the top of the trending topics on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And it's still in the top 10. And that says how brilliant people thought Gordon Lightfoot was. Because in most cases, you know, they kind of move on really, really quickly. Um, But 
this one I think we're going to be listening to Gordon Life. I know we're going to be listening to Gordon Life, but for the rest of our lives. Absolutely. We were reminded too, just to keep in our mind here, what was it? Like I, I take another look at him and I, I'm crying, you know, and listening to the music almost in a new way, realizing how clean and how the message was a little bit, it was always a little bit sad and honest, wasn't, but it was so beautiful and clean and his musical combinations got inside us in a way it wasn't rock he didn't scream it he just grabbed and the music flowed inside of you almost like inside your body and then he spoke almost like he was just speaking to you alone yeah it's one of those things where you go through bob dylan's catalog or joni Mm, mitchell's or paul simon or even bruce coburn to a certain extent um you know you pick an album and you'll have a really good vibe of the era or that year or what was going on through their head musically and where they were kind of stretching themselves. You know, Joni Mitchell can go from, you know, Chanteuse folk singer to orchestra leader to jazz to, you know, a little bit rock. Gordon Lightfoot found that lane on the highway and never mm-hmm. veered from it. No. And so if you like him in the beginning of his career back in like 1962, you'll probably love the mid-80s stuff because it sounds just a little bit more modern, but it's not like that he put a heavy metal album or worked with like a a, a huge rock band. He was just, he knew who he was and he was pretty firm in that. You got it. No disco. You know, the Stones kind of did the Rolling Stones. Yeah, Yeah, they kind of did it. And no (laughs) disco. And I'm sure he would, he swore to that. Eric, you know, lots of Canadian bands really opening up as we talked about how, how he affected others and other musicians. Tragically hip, just one of them. Yeah, there's a, there's a really great history of not only of Gordon Lightfoot, um, but uh, affecting um, musicians and, and bands right across the country, but from around the world. I mean, when you have uh, members of the Tragically Hip and Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's and Stephen King, the author, all paying tribute to him, and that was only within the first couple of seconds of, of people finding out about uh, about his passing. You know that you've done something wrong, uh, something amazing, and so the the ability for him to uh, to have all of those accolades and the the great thing about Gordon Lightfoot specifically um, in in paying tribute to him is that. It happened when he was alive. So much of his awards, um, 16 Juno Awards from 1965 to 73, Composer of the Year, ASCAP Awards for Songwriting, Pop Record of the Year, um, Celebrity Captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs in the early 90s, getting awards from the Governor General, being Honorary Doctorate uh, of universities across Canada. It happened when he was still able to see and feel the love of people around him. And that's, that's one of the greatest achievements I think that this industry and people can give is give it to, you know, show them the love when they're still here. I do. And I, I would love to hear from some listeners on what he meant, because he did stand for being Canadian. Like we were, we were thrilled for so many of the things that you've brought up there, Eric. He had these values. He didn't, you know, he was appreciated in America. He went to America a lot, but he didn't want to be American. He didn't do disco and he didn't move to America, Eric. Yeah, there's there's so much 
of of Canada and his songs that you know about the Canadian railway, about the, the shipwrecks of the Edmund Fitzgerald, of the rivers and the highways and the wilderness. Um, the, he was absolutely Canadian, and and you know back in the sixties of of that coffee house scene in Toronto, uh, they all knew that they had to go to America to break because there really wasn't a whole lot of Canadian music industry around. Um, but when he landed in Los Angeles, he was there for a couple of years and just decided to come back. It, it just didn't really suit him um, a whole lot to, to kind of be there. So he came back um, fully formed and, and fully happy to, to, to kind of hang out here for a while. You know, it's a, a, incredible, too, the effect it had on people, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald, who I've, I, I just thought that was a work of genius. Yeah. And it wasn't just about liking the song. You were out there on the Great Lakes. How did he do that? I mean, literally, that melody it just made you, and he dinging the bell, and you were on a ship, and the families of those people who died are so connected to Gordon yeah. Lightfoot, aren't they? I mean, it was I was teary-eyed reading about how they were reacting to this. It shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been a song. And more importantly, it shouldn't have been a hit song. This no. is a song about <laughs> about, you know, the death of 29 crew members of one of this country's biggest tragedy, but we kept listening to it over and over and over again, and it told one of the great stories uh, ever in in music, ever in pop music, and um, and we kept buying it, and we kept wanting him to play it, and he kept wanting to sing it. Um, and on paper, it's a disastrous move to sing about this, but he just made it work. I remember being a kid and learning in my history class um, about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald through that song. And the, the history professor was very, very hip and cool and kind of looked like Gordon Lightfoot, actually, when I think about it. But he prints <laughs> off the lyrics, and that's how we, we found out. I mean, we, there was no Google, so that was kind of taken as fact for, for years and years and years. Let me ask you the science of it. I always find this very fascinating when we look at musicians and how they drag you in. As you say, we shouldn't have wanted to listen to that song, but we did. What what did he do? Because, you know, you think of it, he did draw you in. And we look at great rock songs and their call and response or, you know, Pink Floyd songs that started, the, the trend that started, they began as one thing and ended in something else. And then we were into some kind of a tribe chant at the end, but he did do something almost tribal there, didn't he? Yeah, he he spoke to us like an elder, um, you know, but that's the amazing great thing about folk music in particular is um, it's the music of the people, and you tell stories about your land and your culture and your community and the people that live in it, and you tell the stories of Canadians who don't have a voice songwriters do that. That's their main mission is to teach and to build um, truth and trust among one another through oral history. And people have been doing it for centuries and centuries and centuries, whether it's through you know, simple poetry or sonnets like Shakespeare did, um, all the way through to Gordon Lightfoot to Billie Eilish now. It's their job to take what's happening in the world and put a mirror to their audience and say, this is you. You went through this. And we all felt that pain when, when not only when the Edmund Fitzgerald happened and that disaster, um, but every time we kind of relive it because it's just such a sad tale. 
Eric, is this going to, there's something you just said, and I thought, wow, I wonder if this is going to give a resurgence into folk music. Because it, you know, it has a little blips, but it never really came back. I mean, it was everything, everything in the 60s. And again, the simplicity of it. Is it time we... We kind of look at, I know people dabble, but then all the other stuff happens around it. But person and guitar, man and guitar, woman and guitar, and nothing else. Can that come back for good, do you think? There's a, there's a great Keith Richards quote from the Rolling Stones, and he said, the mark of a great song is how well it's played on an acoustic guitar. And what he meant by that is you can dress it, any song up with bells and whistles and giant choruses and screaming and studio trickery and techniques and, and uh, auto-tune. But if you can play that song and make people have a feeling about it, an emotional attachment to it through just your voice and a guitar, then it's going to be a really good song. And because Gorin Lightfoot never really strayed away from that, that's why all of his songs still hold up five, six decades later, is because it was just really simplistic. It was him and his voice and the wistfulness and his rising up and down of his voice telling the story. And, you know, even not just this particular song with the Edmund Fitzgerald, but, you know, in, in songs like, you know, in Sundown and Early Morning Rain and River and Ribbon of Darkness and uh, Carefree Highway, Rainy Day People, all of those were written in complete isolation away from the general public. He released them and 40,000 people sing those songs back to him when he was around every single night because they have their own memories of what that song means to them. We don't have to know about Gordon Lightfoot's personal relationship because it doesn't matter. When you listen to Black Day in July, when you listen to Early Morning Rain, mm. we have all been through that. We have. Ribbon of Darkness. I still say that if I'm bummed out. I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if everybody knows. But I, I don't think it's true. Your, you know, Black Clouds and everything. But yeah, I, I hear do. You. I do. I worked with a guy years ago and I'd come in and go, how are you? And he would say, ribbon of darkness over me. And and we'd laugh somehow. But right, it's, right. it's like, oh, yeah, you're going you're, through that time too, huh? Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely, for sure. You know, I'm seeing here Robbie Robertson mentioning rainy day people and putting the quote in and everybody is going for it. What really did it too? It's just see the sorrow and the missing from Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan said there's not a song he didn't love. And again, Eric, Canadians love to hear that, don't they? That quote from Bob Dylan is just so it's just so classic. I, I think that that quote was probably more often quoted in the last week um, just to show people that um, our greatest living singer-songwriter and Bob Dylan could be argued um, against somebody like a Paul McCartney. When Bob Dylan says that, um, people listen. And, you know, going back to your point about, you know, if you if there might be a resurgence in it, um, you know, that that line of the mark of a great song by being played on an acoustic guitar. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. When Taylor Swift started to become really, really popular, Gibson Guitar came out and said that she has been influencing acoustic guitar sales over 300% year on year before she began. And yeah, most so of the sales are going to teenage girls. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 